And as you're seated, I would invite you to turn to uh, John's Gospel, John chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 13 through 22. And uh, as you turn to John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, uh, this morning, I want to remind you that chapter 2 has two events in Jesus' life that are meant to be like a pair of glasses to help us really see and understand Jesus and his ministry. And two Sundays ago, uh, we talked about how really the first lens of those glasses, which is Jesus turning the waters of purification into the wine of celebration and reconciliation and forgiveness. And just to remind you that the whole point of that miracle is to show us that Jesus' ministry is turning the forgiveness of sins into renewed relationships that are full of blessing and peace and joy. And also that Jesus will continue to do that for us as his people throughout all of our life with him. So whenever you look at Jesus, whether you're looking at him in the Gospels or you're looking at his work in your own life, be sure that you're paying attention to how he is turning the forgiveness of sins, particularly your sins, against him and against others into reconciled relationships through his grace. But today, through the second lens, Jesus not only wants us to see what he does, but also who he is. And not just see who he is, Jesus also wants us to see that he's going to make it very hard for us to ignore who he is. Praise God. Uh, And that second part about Jesus making it hard to ignore him is going to come out very clearly in the story this morning because we're going to read about Jesus, meek and mild, walked into the temple, which is, you know, basically a huge church. He looked around, and then either he walked out or he just sort of stood where he was. The text doesn't make it very clear. And then made a whip in front of everybody and then took the whip and drove out all kinds of peoples and animals from the temple. So how does this action and the commands that he gives that we'll read about, the answers he gives that we're going to read about, how does all of this help us to see who Jesus is? And here's the answers that we're going to give to that question this morning. The first is we're going to see that Jesus is the temple that cannot be destroyed. It helps us see, too, that Jesus is the final sacrifice. Three, it helps us see that Jesus is the defender of his people. And fourth, that Jesus is willing to work very hard to keep us from ignoring who he is. So he's the temple that can't be destroyed. He's the final sacrifice. He's the defender of his people. And he's going to work very hard so that it makes it hard for us to ignore who he is. Those are the four things we're going to look at this morning. So let's read John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22, and then we'll start reflecting on what, uh, who Jesus is. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 13. <clears throat> The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead... 
his disciples remember that he had, remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. This father reading of what can only be God's own word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this word which you have inspired and preserved for us, Lord. And we pray now uh, that the words of my, uh, of my mouth as your preacher, that the meditation of our hearts as those called to hear and receive and submit to your word would be pleasing in your sight so that we might learn to see Jesus clearly and respond to him by faith appropriately. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. <clears throat> so the first thing that Jesus wants us to see and that he wanted the people in the temple at the time to see, is that he is the temple that can't be destroyed. And you can see that by what Jesus does with, to, the, to the money changers with the money, and then in the answer that he gives in their request for a sign. So first, let's talk about the money changers. And the first thing that I think needs to be said is that the money that the money changers were exchanging was money that went to keep the temple running. It paid the priests, it bought the candles, it repaired the stones, it painted the walls, and was used for any building projects that might be needed. So it sounds a little bit like our general fund, right? That's what the money was for. The money was for the maintaining and building and rebuilding and repairing of the temple. The second thing that needs to be said is that the, the money changers actually had an important job in collecting these offerings. For as long as there has been coined money, those coins have had pictures on them, which might seem harmless to us because our money has pictures of buildings and dead presidents and you know some other things that are important in our history. In the ancient world, their coins had idols on them. Greek coins might have pictures of Athena or Zeus. Egyptian currencies would have pictures of Ra. Roman currency would often have pictures of Caesar which might seem harmless until you learn that the Caesars declared themselves to be God and had temples built to them and would require that people go to those temples and offer sacrifices and prayers to them for their good life. So if you're a faithful Jew or a faithful Gentile worshiper of God, both of whom we meet in the Bible, and you wanted to give your offering to God at the temple, you could not simply drop a Roman coin with a false god into the offering plate because the Bible says idols cannot be brought into the temple. So you'd give your money to a money changer and they would exchange that for a temple coin that didn't have an idol or an image of God on it. And then you could offer those. So the money changers actually played a vital role in the worship of God's people at this particular time. So why did Jesus drive them out? Now, I know it's common to say that he drove them out because they were actually greedy extortioners who were giving people bad exchange rates and basically stealing money from the church. I know that's common. The only problem with that theory is that so far as I've been able to find, there's no historical evidence for it. It's all just a guess based on the fact that apparently people who handle money are inherently dubious and greedy and defrauding. I don't think that's true. But that's the only reason I've been able to find in the commentaries and history books for that particular read of this text. And more importantly, the text of the Bible does not say that's why Jesus did that. So we'll talk about this more in a little bit. But notice that when Jesus says in verse 16, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. He does not say that to the money changers or to those who sold sheep in auction. He says it explicitly Only to the sellers of pigeons. 
Jesus does not seem to drive out the money changers because they were doing something wrong. In fact, I think it helped his people keep his commandments that he'd given to them in the Old Testament. So why does Jesus do it? Well, I think the answer is found in part by noticing what he does with the money. In verse 15, we're told that he poured out all of the money on the ground, which would include not only all the foreign idol currency money, it would also include all the temple money as well. And then he overturned their tables. So here's how you can think of it. You can think of this as Jesus coming into a church, taking the offering plates for that day, and the bank accounts that were full of the offerings for that particular day, and emptying them all on the ground. And then closing the bank teller window. And then by driving the money changers out, he prevented them from being reopened for that day. Jesus took all of the church's money for that day and got rid of it (laughs) and made it so they couldn't get any more. Now, when you combine that with the fact that the offerings are for the building and maintaining of the temple, I think you can see pretty clearly what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, now that I'm here, this temple is no longer going to be built or maintained in this way anymore. And there's one more clue for that as well. Because uh, Jesus says, in the answer to the Jews' question, what sign do you get for doing this? Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. Jesus calls himself the temple. Jesus' point is that he is the new temple of God. He is the new temple of God who is not maintained by human hands. Now, why would Jesus be so concerned that we see that he is the temple of God. Why would Jesus even want to be the temple of God? Well, it's because of what the temple is all about. The temple was where you met God. It's where you went to give God offerings. It's where you went to give him praise. You'd go to the temple to, to offer your sacrifices. You'd go to hear God speak to you, to be forgiven. You'd go to be reconciled to him. You'd go to be reconciled to his people, all of whom were also worshiping with you because you're gathered together before God. The temple is where you met God with God's people. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't need to worry anymore about maintaining or rebuilding this particular temple. Because I'm here now. So whenever you want to come and meet with God, whenever you want to be reconciled to his people, whenever you want to meet with his people and worship and in praise, come to me, Jesus is saying, because I am God in the flesh. I am the new temple. But not only that, right? By overturning the tables of the money changers and driving them all of the temple, Jesus was showing and declaring, or excuse me, and, and by saying that he would be raised up in three days after being destroyed, Right? Jesus is showing and declaring and promising that Jesus, our temple, cannot be taken away from us. I mean, pay attention to what the response of God's people was, the Jews, when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back up. They said it's taken 46 years to rebuild this temple. It's taken 46 years to get our meeting place with God back. And to have the ability to worship him and serve him and bring offerings to him in the way that we want and in the way that God has commanded us. It's, think of how hard it would be to have to wait a half a century to worship God in the fullest way possible. And then to live in fear that it would be destroyed again. And Jesus is saying, we'll never be there again. Because Jesus is the temple that can't be destroyed. 
Jesus is the place where we meet with God, and that place cannot be destroyed by war. It cannot be stolen by thieves. It can't be outlawed by governments. Our temple is never in danger because our temple has been raised from the dead into eternal life. That's the first thing that Jesus wants us to see about who he is. He is the temple that cannot be destroyed. And because of that, we, his people, can always go to Jesus and meet God and be reconciled with him and be reconciled with each other. It's amazing. It's what Jesus wants us to see. And if you think about what he does throughout the entire gospel, where people are like, man, I think I just met with God when I met with Jesus. Jesus reconciling people. Like, that's the point. Jesus is the temple. The second thing that Jesus wants us to see is that he's the final sacrifice. So this point's going to be pretty short. It's all based on verse 14 and especially verse 15. So I'm going to read those again. In the temple, verse 14, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. So the sheep and the oxen were for the old covenant sacrifices and they were offered for the forgiveness of sins, for purification and for reconciliation. And in the old covenant, these sheep and oxen were sacrificed in your place. Though they were clearly not guilty of your sins and of your idolatry and of your self-righteousness, I don't mean to offend you, but the sheep were more loyal to Jesus than you are because they don't sin. Stupid sheep. Are more loyal. My dog, who some of you know his nickname, loves Jesus more than I do because he does not sin, right? So these creatures who are not guilty of sin die in our place in the old covenant so that we can be forgiven and live with God. And that's why they were at the temple. Like the money changers, those who sold the auction and sheep were actually providing a really important service. And Jesus drives them out too. And not just them. Notice John focuses in the sheep and the oxen as well. So just like Jesus emptying the offering plates and preventing it from being recollected, so he empties out the sacrifices. All the sheep and the oxen, even those that had already been sold, maybe even those that were about ready to be sacrificed, They're all driven out. No more sacrifices today. Why? Because Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. And that this is precisely Jesus' meaning can be seen in the verse that the disciples think of after Jesus is done driving them all away. So in verse 17, we're told, his disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And that's a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. And it's important to know that consumed... In Psalm 69, and here in John, does not mean passion, right? We use consumed as a metaphor for something that just makes my whole life, I drive my whole life toward it. That's not what it means. It means what it means literally, consumed by fire, offered on the altar. Or as one commentator translated, I like this, tears me to pieces, or we would say, rends me limb from limb. Zeal for your house will destroy my entire life. And in fact, here's what all of verse 9 of Psalm 69 says. He says, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Or maybe a bit more clearly, definitely not as beautifully as God's poetry, a desire for your temple's beauty has torn me to pieces. 
because the justice of those who sinned against you has fallen on me. That's the verse that the Holy Spirit makes the disciples think of when Jesus is doing this. You see, Jesus is saying, these animals no longer need to be consumed for you because I will be consumed for you. I will be torn to pieces for you. In Isaiah's words, by my wounds, you will be healed and made whole. So to see Jesus clearly, you need to see that Jesus is the sacrifice that makes you whole. If you want to come to God and be forgiven, you have to go through Jesus. If you want to be reconciled to God's people, you have to go through Jesus. And if you want to know the depth of God's love for sinners like you and how much God desires a peace-filled, joy-filled, reconciled, eternal relationship with you, then look at Jesus and see that he was consumed, torn to pieces, rent limb from limb, stabbed by a spear so that blood and water could flow out out of God, his passion for God's house. And God's house, by the way, in Psalm 69, means you, God's people, God's church. Jesus is the sacrifice who dies innocently in our place so that we can live. It's amazing. Okay, so Jesus wants us to see that he is the temple that cannot be destroyed. He wants us to see that he is the final, perfect, total sacrifice for our sins. And finally, Jesus wants us to see that he is the defender of his people. And here we're going to look at uh, Jesus' interaction with the pigeon sellers. And here with this group of people, Jesus is basically accusing them of extortion and of sin. So verse 16, And he told those who sold the pigeons... Take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. So unlike with the money changers, unlike with the sellers of oxen and sheep, Jesus is explicitly concerned with the fact that they are buying and selling. He's not even concerned with the fact, by the way, that they're making a profit. Maybe they're doing this at a loss. Maybe these are lost leaders for them. But his problem is explicitly that they are doing this kind of trade in the temple. Why is he concerned about that? Well, I think it's because of who offered pigeons in the Old Covenant and what those pigeons were normally offered for. So I'm going to explain that. So in the Old Covenant sacrificial system, for most offerings, you could offer an ox or a cow if you were wealthy, a sheep if you were middle class, and a pigeon or a dove if you were poor. Now, in the Old Testament times, this was established, I think, um, and and I'm, I'm not going to go through all of the exegesis on this because we would be here for a long time, but we can talk about this later. But I think this was established because pigeons and doves uh, were wild and you could trap them freely. So if you're poor, you have access to these animals for free, unlike cattle and sheep, which were basically private property, which were always private property. So in the Old Testament times, God is basically saying, if you're poor... I will make it so that you can give the offerings you need to give me by providing them freely for you out of the bounties of my own nature. Just like he's saying to the wealthy and middle class, if I have given you the means, I will provide the offerings that you need to give me through the means, the financial means that I have given to you out of the bounties of my goodness for you. But that's not all that we can say then about pigeons and doves in the Old Covenant offering system. We certainly need to say that they're 
for the poor and that they were freely available, and that's why. We also need to say that in cases where people became unclean, where they became sick, or when they touched a dead body, or in a lot of these other pure kind of the cleanliness laws, the offering to become clean again and to be allowed into the temple and to worship with God's people, that offering was a pigeon or a dove. And I think there's a lot of cool things that we can say about God using the same offering to cleanse both the rich and the poor and to make them equal members of his kingdom. I'm going to save that for another day. You can probably fill that in yourself a little bit in your mind. Suffice it to say that pigeons were offered when someone needed to be made clean or when someone who was poor wanted to make a thank offering or even for certain kinds of sins. Now from there, think about Jesus' ministry in the Gospels. What is Jesus doing in the Gospels? John, Matthew, Mark, what is he doing? He's healing the sick. He's healing lepers. He heals the woman who had an issue of blood for years. He heals the lame. Now, all of these people, right, in order to worship well in the Old Covenant, would need to go and offer a sacrifice, either a sacrifice of thanksgiving or a sacrifice of purification or both, and they would all need pigeons or doves. Now, if you're the lame man who Jesus heals in chapter 5 and who he meets again in the temple in chapter 5, how much money do you have if you cannot walk? The answer is... Zero. Because at this time, there's no disability, there's no welfare state, and you made your money with your body. The same thing goes for lepers that Jesus healed, who could not work. Because of their leprosy, they were not allowed to be part of normal society and sell, sell things or buy things in the market. They would have been literally dirt poor. But now... That Jesus has healed them, cleansed them. Where do they go to get their offerings to be made and then rejoin society and be able to start working? Where do they they go to receive God's gift of restoration and reintegration and reconciliation? Where do they go to get these offerings that they need to say thank you? These people who are dirt poor have to go to the pigeon sellers who in this case are exploiting the poor, selling them something that God explicitly wanted them to have for free. And what happens when you exploit people? You prevent them from entering places, you prevent them from being full members of society, and you prevent them from receiving the full gift that God wants to give them. Exploitation robs people of the blessings God wants to give them. In this case, it robs them of the ability to start making money and actually take care of themselves and their families if they have them. So by throwing out the pigeon sellers and commanding them basically to knock this nonsense off, I think we see Jesus showing that he is the protector of his people. Jesus will not have second-class citizens in his kingdom. He will protect the most vulnerable of his people. Jesus wants us to know, no matter your your race, your wealth, your background, he is the temple and your sacrifice if you trust in him. And he will not allow anyone or anything to keep you from full access to him. I think that's amazing. I think we can say even maybe one more thing. I'm going to add a half a point, quarter of a point here. I think we can say even more, maybe one more thing about this as well uh, by connecting this to Jesus' earlier miracle of turning water into wine. By driving out the 
pigeons too, which are the poorest offerings, right? I think we can say, even see in this action, Jesus saying this, and when you come to me for forgiveness and to meet God, and when you need my protection, don't bring anything with you. I want you to come empty-handed so that I can fill you with my blessings. Because that's how I think this event and turning water into wine connect. You don't need to bring me a sacrifice. I'm the sacrifice. Come to me and I will turn your water into wine. It's powerful. I think it's a powerful image. Okay, uh, so Jesus is our temple who cannot be destroyed. He's our final sacrifice. He's the protector of his people. He is all these things for us for free because he's amazing. One last thing very quickly. Jesus is willing to work very hard to keep us from ignoring who he is. So our image of Jesus can be one that is pretty passive, right? We can picture Jesus as a sort of scholarly teacher, patches on his jacket, standing in a corner, speaking quietly, not raising his voice, calm, cool, and collected, right? Hoping people will kind of listen. Uh, here, Jesus marches into a room, makes a whip, and like literally clears the temple. <laughs> It's not, not, not super passive. It's a shocking image. And it's meant to be shocking. Jesus is trying to wake people up. He wants to unsettle them. He wants them to have to face him and deal with him. Look at me, Jesus is saying. You know, if, 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 you, had, if you had someone who came in here right now, and took the offering plates and threw them all over and started using a whip and driving us out, we would be paying attention and being like, what has happened? (laughs) Why does Jesus do this? I think Jesus does this because of what I would want to call ferocious love. Like, Like just this ferocious love that refuses to be ignored. Our God loves his people so ferociously, so much like a lion on the hunt for its prey, like the Old Testament says, that he will make it incredibly hard for us to ignore him. He's going to make it very difficult for us to keep our eyes closed and continue to love our idols and love our sin. And that was not just true in Jesus's earthly ministry where it was very hard to ignore Jesus. I think it's also true in our lives as well. Jesus will sometimes do things that are shocking and startling in our lives to get our attention. Not because he has fun doing it. I don't think Jesus was skipping and dancing and singing songs when he was using the whip, right? He doesn't do it to be fun. He does it because we need to be jolted and shocked and surprised into seeing him more clearly so that we can respond properly. And I'm sure that you can think of times in your own life, like I can in mine, where you were shocked by something that an event that got allowed to happen and you realized, wow, I did not understand how important this was to Jesus. Or, wow, I completely misunderstood who Jesus is. Or, like we hope the pigeon cells responded, wow, I'm a terrible sinner and I need to repent and love Jesus more. When those times happen, as shocking and even often painful as they are, it can be, it's because Jesus' love is ferocious and he will not be denied his people. He will not be denied his people. And I, for one, am super glad that Jesus is willing to shake me out of my complacency and willful ignorance so that I can respond to him and say, yeah, you know what I need? Jesus. So um, that said, 
I also want to say our goal in life should be to not have to have Jesus use a whip to get our attention. Right? In other words, we want to be people who are more tuned into Jesus than that. And that's part of Jesus' meaning in this action as well. He's saying, pay attention. He only did this because he had to. Does he do it again in the Gospels? No. Why? Because he had the attention. And people were, particularly his disciples, were paying the kind of attention he needed to pay. They had learned to focus. And so my encouragement for us, my friends, this morning is that we need to learn to see Jesus for who he is and to keep on seeing him for who he is, right? He is our temple where we go to meet with God and meet with God's people and be reconciled and forgiven. He's the sacrifice who is consumed for our sins so that we can live. He's the defender who will always ensure that we have a place to live with him. And he is the God of ferocious love who will ensure that we will as his people, see him for who he is. He will, not be, he will not let us ignore him because he loves us so much that he wants to live with us forever and praise him for all of that. Amen? Let's pray.